0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 165. It is February 3rd. My name is Tyler. Of course, I'm joined by Pratik and Nick, my co-hosts, as always. Before we jump right into the stories of this week, please follow. Please share the podcast. Really helps us out um, if you could do so.
1: So with that, we're going to be kicking it right off with Nick. What's going on? So the third and most confusing primary. Welcome to Nevada. So some state parties choose to award delegates based on the results of government-run primaries, whereas others run party-run caucuses. In Nevada, that's the case. So there's a state law that requires Nevada to have a primary election, but the Nevada GOP voted to hold their own caucuses that are only open to Republican voters. The party's only going to award the delegates for the primary process through the caucuses, So basically, the whole primary election that's going to happen on the 6th in Nevada doesn't mean anything. There's no delegates that are going to be awarded, and it's all symbolic. So Nikki Haley is on the primary ballot, Trump isn't. Um, And Trump is running pretty hard in the caucuses. Quote, "Um, when Nikki Haley opted to be on the state primary ballot on February 6th, rather than the party caucuses on February 8th, Trump doesn't have much competition. And quote, that's according to Spencer Kimball, the executive director of Emerson College Polling. And the state is a delegate take all primary with 26 delegates open. Trump is predicted to win in a landslide. And so when you inevitably see that Nikki Haley wins the primary on the 6th because Trump isn't even running on it and the voters don't even matter, you know, don't be surprised when a few days later Trump wins all the delegates from the state because he ends up winning the caucuses. So Prateek and Tyler. Personally, I think this is pretty stupid that <laughs> Nevada's having a primary and a caucus and the primary doesn't even matter. But what's your guys take on this?
2: So I was when I was writing this story, I was so confused. I'm like, OK, so you have a state. They got two primary elections. One of them counts. One of them doesn't count. And Nikki Haley really wanted to be in the one that doesn't count. It made zero sense exactly what her thought process was, what the state's thought process is. And again, this is 26 delegates, so it's kind of a lot of delegates that you're playing with. <clears throat> but it's all it's all winner take all delegates. So Trump's basically been given a free pass to win all these 26 delegates without essentially doing anything. And it's such a weird like primary election because it's like usually in a and pri- in any election, you have someone that you have two people that are running. You have one person and you have the other person. And in this situation, you have one the main main um election is just gonna have trump and nobody else there's a trump option and then there's a none of the above option and then there's a primary election that just has nikki haley which doesn't count which just has nikki haley and doesn't have anybody else it's true nikki haley or none of the above so it's kind of like you have you're voting for two things but it's like it, it basically they just already were like all right we're not even gonna have this we're just gonna give it to trump essentially so it's a strange election. I don't really understand why they even have it. They could have just been like, all right, we'll just not do this and just let Nevada just be taken by Trump. Because that's essentially what took place.
0: Yeah. Well, like, look, rationally speaking, it, it makes no sense. For our political system, it makes no sense. But if I am Nikki Haley and I have the opportunity to run on a ballot unopposed to Trump, even if I'm not winning delegates, I get to go out and say I want a state. I get to go out and say I won Nevada. So. You were talking last week about how maybe potentially she's setting herself up for for the next election cycle. This is an instance where I could actually see that being the case. Because she would get a win of a state under her belt. And that would be, you know, that would give her a lot of ground going into the next election. But practically speaking, it doesn't change anything in this election. It is a joke. The fact that you had, you know, some confusion when you're writing the article trying to figure out what was going on. I mean, most people probably will as well. This is a weird circumstance. We shouldn't be doing it. But this is America. I don't know, man. We're just doing our best over here. Um, so we have to apparently run elections twice without the same people on the, on the ballot each time. But hey, it's
1: Nevada, baby. I have some uh, fun information from PBS News that did a story on this. It says three Nevada GOP leaders who are going to oversee the caucuses were indicted on felony charges for a fake electors scheme where they sent fake electors into <laughs> Congress that falsely claimed that Trump won Nevada in 2020. So... I, it's just a fun state in general. Um, you know. As you can probably tell, Trump, again, is pretty favored in the caucuses. And it's just hilarious to me that three of the people that, like, for all that Trump talked about, oh, people are faking votes, the whole system's... For the people that actually tried to fake votes and get the election overturned, they're still you know, involved with running this caucus. So, you know, mm-hmm. Nevada as a state, you know, we love it for gambling, we love it for all that stuff, but... You know, you also got to love it for the politics. I feel like it's down and dirty back to uh, ancient Greece or something, you know? I don't know. I could see these guys in togas getting, you know, absolutely smashed, totally drunk, and just throwing ballots left and right. So, I don't know. At least it'll be fun.
0: It is funny though that it did happen in Nevada. Of course, you have Las Vegas. You just think of the you know these crime syndicate organizations who can get away with whatever they want. In fact, the mixed martial arts and boxing commissions are most famous in Nevada for being corrupt. Um, so this is nothing new. This is something that's occurred quite often. But that's a really funny little tidbit to add to the story. Pratik.
2: So one thing I wanted to add. So last last episode. Tyler mentioned that, you know, what is the point of someone that comes number two for the next time they come and run an election? So Tyler was saying that generally speaking, we don't, um, it's, he, wanted, he asked us that in the previous amount of times, whenever there has been an election, if a candidate has come number two, how did they fare in the next election or were they even involved in the next election? So I did some research on this. So I wanted to walk through all these different candidates that were like that. First and foremost which comes to mind is what Nick had talked about was Hillary Clinton. So Hillary Clinton was the number 2 in the 2008 election and she was really close to Barack Obama but Barack Obama won that, you know, nomination. So Hillary Clinton became the frontrunner in 2016. Some of that was from the coattails of being number 2 in 2008. Other candidates that are similar to this are Mitt Romney. So in 2008, same time in the Republican primary, even though John McCain lost, John McCain and Mitt Romney were pretty neck and neck. And then in 2012, whenever the Republicans had their next primary cycle to defeat Obama in re-election, Mitt Romney was the clear frontrunner. He had some closeness to Newt Gingrich, but Mitt Romney was deemed as the frontrunner going into that election and he became the nomination of the party. So that's two clear instances
0: I will say those instances didn't win, but I know you yeah. have other examples. But I, yeah. I will say they didn't so, actually win the presidency, but it did give them some
1: advantage going. Yeah, into the it made
2: election. them the front runner at least. Yeah. So yeah. then, when you go back in time. So what other clear examples are was Bush Senior and Ronald Reagan. So Ronald Reagan was you know became Ronald Reagan and Bush Senior had a really tight election in the nineteen eighties. Ronald Reagan won, and after Ronald Reagan won, he made his closest second front runner or second um you know runner up Bush Senior his running mate as the vice president. And then in nineteen eighty eight, um Bush Senior became president after you know being the VP for Ronald Reagan for eight years, and then prior to that. The most recent, most, another example of that where Tyler can say that there was actually a winner was Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan. So in um, after Richard Nixon got impeached, Gerald Ford became the president and was president for three years, and then in his presidential primaries, he was running against Ronald Reagan. And in that election um, primary, it was very tight. That was one of the most like back and forth, like criticism, hostile elections at that time period. Because previously, you know, all these elections, everybody was all nice and lovey-dovey with everybody. But that was where, you know, within the intra party primary, it got ugly. And that was between Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford. Then Gerald Ford lost to Jimmy Carter. Um, In that election and then the next election saw Ronald Reagan become the clear frontrunner and Ronald Reagan basically won everything against Jimmy Carter But Ronald Reagan was the number two with Gerald Ford in that primary cycle before you know before that Gerald Ford Jimmy Carter election So that's another one and then the one previously before that deals with Richard Nixon So Richard Nixon um, had a really close election with Eisenhower way way back in the day um, in the 19, I guess right after the World War II. So in the 1950s, and Richard Nixon became Eisenhower's running mate. Then, after a while, Richard Nixon was like a loser candidate. He would run in every single primary election and would lose constantly. And then, the most recent to that was when LBJ was running against Barry Goldwater where Barry Goldwater um, had a close primary with Richard Nixon. Barry Goldwater won. And then Barry Goldwater got knocked out of the water by LBJ in that election. So then um, whenever LBJ was running for, I guess, his second term against Richard Nixon, um, Richard Nixon basically blew him out. So then Richard Nixon became the candidate. So those are different options, scenarios where that happened. But just wanted to bring that up so people know. So whatever Nikki Haley's doing... Maybe Nikki Haley is looking at it from a long-term aspect, she just stays in there for the long haul, she'll be the number two, and then her being the number two may help her out in the next primary election. Unless someone, if Trump chooses someone that is a substantial VP type candidate like Ramaswamy, but if Trump chooses someone random like Mike Pence, then Nikki Haley may still end up being a major Front runner in the next election it's a possibility so i just wanted to bring that up it's educational but i felt like you know we should understand this because it is important so then he helps us understand what could happen in the future
0: trump that was more mike exciting pence's than VP. the nevada primary story trump picking mike pence's vp would be, be the biggest flip of the script in political history in this country it would be quite funny Maybe it's to capture the vote of the people that didn't believe the election was stolen, so you have Trump. <laughs> and then you have Pence. <laughs> That's everyone, right? But hey, with that, let's move on to our next topic: over immigration and Ukraine. All
2: right. So this story is called "Illegal Immigration Is Equal to Ukraine?" Question mark. So Senate negotiators have struck a deal on an asylum system overhaul at the U.S.-Mexico border, paving the way for bipartisan efforts to push through a national security package. The comprehensive legislation in- initiated by President Biden's request for $110 billion includes funds for Ukraine, immigration enforcement, Israel, and allies. <clears throat> Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, the lead Democratic negotiator, announced the deal on social media. The package faces a challenging journey through Congress with GOP resistance that com- compromises on border security senate democrats while more receptive might encounter opposition from progressives and hispanic house members over border policy changes concerns also arise about wartime aid for israel dividing democrats and conservative opposition to continued ukrainian funding and border compromises gop lawmakers debate the need for immigration legislation and some advocate for committee hearings before a final vote. The legislation focuses on asylum system challenges, aiming to streamline processes, but immigration advocates worry about potential limitations for asylum seekers. Republican opposition persists in both congressional chambers regarding compromises on border security policy. Initially, Senate Republicans insisted on incorporating border policy changes into the national security package. However, the GOP's likely presidential nominee, Donald Trump, has emerged as a vocal opponent on the legislation. Senator Murphy emphasized the bipartisan effort to address border concerns, stating Republicans said the border is a priority, and we should craft a bipartisan bill to help control the border. We did that. We have a deal. With this, Murphy highlighted that it's now decision time in navigating the contentious issue. The criticisms are based on rumors and misconceptions, Independent Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema said, who was central to crafting the bill on Thursday. And on the conservative front, objections arise against on funding, uh, ongoing funding for Ukraine and compromises on border enforcement. House Speaker Mike Johnson staunchly rejects compromising on tough border measures, but withholds further final judgment until reviewing the bill. And lastly, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville. Criticized Republican leadership hinting at potential negative perceptions if no action is taken. The legislation grapples with the challenge of managing asylum seekers, acknowledging the overwhelmed system, and the need for reform amid prolonged case awaits. So... Um, this is kind of complicating where you have all these different factions. You have factions within the Republican Party that are opposed and want this bill to go through. You have factions within the Democratic Party that want this bill to go through, and then ones that are opposed because of all the things connected with the Israel-Palestinian stuff, and many of the Democrats that are opposed to them doing the same amount of border enforcement in terms of immigration security. But a majority of the Democrats are on board, but in a majority of the Republicans are on board as a, apart from you know some of these small groups here and there however speaker johnson who is the basic face of the house of the Repo- house in the republican party he is one of the most staunchest opponents to this whole bill so kind of complicating mess what are your thoughts on what's going on
0: With these huge bills, everyone's just trying to get a little piece of their pie so they can go back to the constituents and say, hey, look, look what I fixed. I fixed the border. Hey, look, I sent money to Ukraine or I didn't send money to Ukraine. Everyone's going to go back to the constituents and say that. I actually think the Republicans have a better argument here because I was just looking at the number of encounters we've been having on the southern border. Um, Over the past few years, and it's actually at the highest point it's been over the past four years, over 300,000 encounters in December, and we know a lot of these immigrants are actually coming into the country, you know, preempting possibly a a Trump election. People wouldn't really want to illegal immigrate nearly as much if Trump's elected um, as president here. So the border is a huge, huge issue. It's closer to home than something like Ukraine, and I think that's something that we're we should be focused on. So I understand the Republicans' concerns on that front. The problem is Democrats and we've talked about this before, have pigeonholed themselves on immigration. They can't really do anything. They can't signal that they're stronger on immigration because then they'll basically be uh, you know, doing what the conservatives want them to do. But if they're too lenient, then we're going to have a lot of chaos in the country. We've seen these uh, migrants being shipped around. We see that these cities um, are understaffed. They're under housed. We don't have enough housing for these immigrants. We've sent them to very populated areas, and they've just caused a whole mess. So with all that said... Look, I think the Republicans are in the right here. I would like to see them getting more of the concessions, but I don't think that's going to happen here. I think there's just going to be some sort of middle ground, as always occurs with these huge, massive bills.
1: Nick, Well, I feel like we've talked about stuff like this a lot, and I'm just kind of curious what you guys think of the amount of time that they have to actually process this and deal with it. I think they have a week to read it and uh, make a decision as to whether or not they want to do the deal.
0: Well, they've had a lot of time negotiating, though. Like, this bill's been around for a little while now, so I'm pretty sure most, of at least the legislatures, kind of know what's going on. But
1: you're right. It's a lot it's a lot of pages to read in one week, but this is their job. I'd hope they'd be able to do it. Who knows? It's too difficult, Tyler. These, these omnibus things, it's too much. Too much to handle. It is too much. And we talk about how, you know... They're so big that
0: no one gets anything they want. Nick, I know in the past you had talked about how that's something you like about our political system. You like the fact that basically everyone has to come to the table and compromise. So aren't you a fan of this?
1: I mean, in a way, I guess. But, I mean, hmm, let's see. I think think from a pure, like, from a practical standpoint, if— you have negotiations constantly and they always fall th- fall through then yeah you have to put a bunch of things together because otherwise on individual issues you're never going to agree and nothing's going to get done and that's been a major issue more so than you know having a rush to end up working on these things late at night and coming through and agreeing on them the next day i think the bigger issue really is agreeing on anything at all and so as a result of that i think you know to your point i am a fan but you know obviously not ideal at the end of the day to only have a limited amount of time but yeah pratik you were about to say something
2: yeah so i was thinking about this this is a situation where literally everyone can become a loser like and i feel like sure everyone wins something but i feel like everyone also loses something in the same regard
0: but that happens in a good negotiation no one leaves the table happy right isn't that like yeah the, yeah, the yeah hallmark that's true. of a good negotiation
2: that's true but in when it's next to an election that could be catastrophic to some of these people so let me break this down so if you are one of these democrats that are part of the you know the pro-palestine wing you know the people that are like you know sympathetic toward the palestinian cause and they hate israel and they think israel is blowing up palestine and they're bad people right if you're a part of that group now if you support this bill even though the hamas palestinian thing may be like one of the biggest back burners of this whole bill But it's still included if you support this bill then you are telling people that you didn't have the backbone to stand up to palestine or stand up to israel you just wanted to get this bill through because you're part of your party hack and the only reason you got this through was because the party told you to get it through because there are certain elements of this bill that you're not in favor of same time now you go to the republican side you will have some maga people people like mtg you know your republican maga wing now those maga wing people what are they mostly opposed to? I mean, they're, they're for the immigration stuff, but they're opposed to Ukraine funding. They don't want any Ukraine funding because they've talked about timeless, countless times that they don't want to provide more billions of dollars to Ukraine. And if they support this bill because they care about illegal immigration and they want to stop the amount of illegal immigrants that come across the border, well, they will be caving into the Ukrainian demands, which is That, you know, Ukraine keeps on coming to beg for money and Americans like to just give them whatever money that they want to give them because, you know, they come and they ask and Biden's like, okay, well, that's what they're opposed to. So now if they go about with this bill, then they basically lose out on that front and they're going to lose voters because of it now. Let me tell you another aspect of this whole thing. Hispanic voters. Hispanic. Hispanic voters, the Hispanic base, and Hispanic po- politicians. So there's a few Hispanic politicians that are in the you know in Congress, some of them in the Senate. And what happens is that Hispanic people tend to have a stronger opinion when it deals with immigration. Obviously, they don't want, you know, even though a lot of the Hispanic populations within border states may be a lot more staunchly opposed to illegal immigration because it gives them a worse look, Even then, they don't want Hispanic people to be mistreated and they don't want them to be sent back in cages and treated like dogs and treated poorly whenever they're on the border. Because their argument is is that the situation from their home countries is much worse and whenever people come to America, they want to envision something that is much grander. And if people are given, you know, access into the US, Hispanic people will argue and many immigrants will argue, doesn't even necessarily be Hispanic, that they're going to be contributing to the economic system. They're still going to be paying taxes. And even though they are illegal, they're still going to be contributing to the American economy in much grander ways by competing for jobs that nobody else wants to do. And whenever you think of Hispanic people doing certain jobs, some of these jobs are jobs that no one wants to do. And sure, they may be illegal immigrants and they may have some other things that they do and they may have to like forge visas and they do all their own stuff too. But ultimately, they're still contributing to the American economy. So in that aspect, you're going to lose Hispanic voters. But my point with this whole story before I get confused in what I'm trying to argue is that, you know, everyone is losing something here. No one is necessarily having any advantageous gains. Everyone is taking a loss. Democrats are also going to take that loss. When Biden goes up and says that we passed this bill, if Democrats question him on like, okay, well, you were the ones that wanted to bring peace in the border and you were trying to allow there to be more humanity on the border as opposed to Trump. Well, this is the most insane immigration bill that has ever been passed to date where even Republicans have never passed anything that was this hardcore against illegal immigrants until, apart from what this bill is, you know, in terms of the details of this bill. So how are you any better than Trump? Are you any better than Trump? And if I am on the fence about your immigration policy, am I, like, you know, satisfied or pleased by Biden's immigration policy? Thing is, ultimately, if I am a Democrat and I look at immigration, I'm still gonna vote for Biden. And if I'm a Republican and I look at immigration, I'm still gonna vote for Trump. But my point is with this bill, nobody wins. So ultimately it's better for everyone for this bill not to go through. And politically speaking, the more and more of these wedge issues continue to surround the 2024 presidential election, the better it is because all of these people have something to fight about. If this bill passes, no one wins. Everyone loses. And no, if I, anything, I Democrats will lose as many much as Republicans.
0: I think the Republicans probably win more if, if nothing goes through, just because Bi- Biden's in office. So the Democrats hold power and for them not to be able to get anything through would signal weakness. But I did want to add a little bit more context here. So, on the Ukraine side, I don't know if you guys have been seeing, but um, Zelensky basically just dismissed his top commander. I don't know if you, if you guys had seen that, but there had been a rift with him and his top military commander, and there's a shakeup there. So, us sending more money, it, it's kind of an odd time, because if their military leader, the guy that's been, you know, taking action over these past two years to fight off Russia is going to be ousted and someone else is put there, do we trust that new person as much? These are questions we have to ask. So with that said, do you guys think that we should be funding Ukraine at the same level we have been or less so? Kind of like what's suggested in this new compromise bill.
1: Well, it actually depends on what you're thinking about. Um, The argument I think could be made that now is the time to do more funding than ever before. And the reason for that being, Once the winter thaw ends up, you know, going away, that's once, you know, once the line ends up moving again, right, is in the springtime. That happened this last year. And then, of course, things end up at a standstill. But I just think that if you were going to do any time, the springtime is sort of when to do it. Otherwise, like, for example, like in the middle of winter, like nothing's happening. So there's no point in like sending any money for anything. Um, But if you're coming up on spring, coming up on summer, when things actually will happen, then it makes a lot of sense to sort of double down. And if this is seen as like the last real year for anything to change in a major way, then I feel like this is the time for funding. If you don't agree with that though, if you think, Oh, things are just going to be frozen. Nothing's going to move. And this issue is just going to stay where it is for the next, I don't know, like 10 years, nothing's going to happen. Then of course do nothing. But if you think that, you know, this is kind of like the last chance at a hurrah, then you should end up sending some money over because, you know, For all intents and purposes, like once things flip um, to, you know, your point and Pratik's point, um, yeah, nothing nothing new is going to happen, right? Once the administration changes, you know, all this stuff is kind of a moot point and you've lost any momentum to start to have um, any of these appropriations actually go through and sent over. So know, I, I bet time. the conversation within, you know,
0: within the generals and whatever are having right now is they're looking at the military intelligence and going, how long can Russia actually continue with this war? And can we outfund them? And if we can't outfund them, how long will it take for us to kind of like ameliorate the situation altogether? Do we just pour money for the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Like, I, I'm just curious if there's any kind of plan there, because if we saw that Russia, for instance, could only last two more years, it absolutely <laughs> makes sense to keep funding Ukraine. Because we will be able to outfund them, and eventually Russia, one of our biggest, you know, enemies, will be much, much weaker for that. So I completely get that, but without that intelligence, it's really hard for me to come to an agreement here. I'm hoping, you know, legislators and stuff are being briefed on all this information, but
1: I I don't know. Sure, you would hope, but at the same time, a lot of those same people don't even care. Regardless of whatever that would say, the people who would vote against this would say, look, we shouldn't even be in there in the first place, we shouldn't be doing anything, we shouldn't be involved, stay home, don't spend any money... And that's it. They they wouldn't but, but really so care deep. about winning or losing.
0: We're hundred and I know the sunk cost fallacy or that We're so deep. We're hundreds of billions of dollars into this thing. Where it's it, it's it's hard to just, just to cut it off cold turkey. I think even though I'm more supportive of that position, to just say tomorrow it, it's all over, game over, we're gonna stop is a little hard to you know justify in my opinion.
2: What I what I would say is in politics. What happens is people tend to forget about how things and decisions were made whenever they were in office. Literally like true. as soon as the day they come in. And the reason I bring that up is like in the past, like way, way back, if you go back into Obama Trump days, when Obama was in office, do some of the things that were going on deal with Syria. Syria and Ukraine, I feel like have a lot of parallels in its own right. So whenever Syria, um, the Syrian situation was going on where you had Assad side, you have the Syrian National Front, you had ISIS, you had Al-Qaeda, you had Hamas, you had Hezbollah, you had some other Syrian rebels within there. Yeah, there's a lot of complications dealing with how many players were involved. But at that time, there was a lot of Syrian funding going on. And then at, and whenever that was going on, Republicans are like, why are we spending all this money in Syria? What is going on over there? We don't even know what the hell we're doing. Why are we over there? very similar to the whole ukraine situation that we're seeing right now but then as soon as trump gets on board and becomes president they engage in this attack um on april 4th 2017 called the sharat missile strike where they basically chemical they basically bomb all these like chemical like you know like what he call got it? it's like chemical missile storage areas where they had all these chemical uh chemical weapons that were stored in these specific you know storage units republican uh, Donald Trump um and like France and Britain all like you know combined collectively and bombed all these places and then the same democrats that were all about you need to care about this Syrian crisis and we need to help all these Syrians and all this stuff were criticizing Trump for engaging in these attacks arguing why are we involved in foreign territories when we have all these other problems going on in our own country why are we spending a bunch of money over there and why are we engaging in mass strikes that could engage, that could potentially engage us in another foreign conflict irony is, wasn't that long literally 2017 is when Trump got elected 2016 is when all the Syrian stuff was going on the point is, is that whenever this stuff flips whenever Republicans take charge again if, if Donald Trump ends up becoming president Democrats are going to be the same ones criticizing everything that Donald Trump is doing in Ukraine Whatever Donald Trump does, if Donald Trump provides them with more Ukrainian funding, they're going to argue, why are we so inefficient on how much Ukrainian funding we're providing? They're going to be arguing, why are we spending so much money in Ukraine? when Because whatever Biden did, we got so far, why didn't we end up closing this thing off? And why is the war still going on? and if trump comes up with some conclusion where russia wins something and there's some compromise any compromise to end the war democrats are going to be like how did how did why did trump allow this compromise to happen and why did he allow russia to even win a little bit but not doing anything in any inaction is just leading you to spend more money and is leading the you know war to continue going on, which is leading more people to die. So ultimately, like as I say, this is politics. No one wins. Whatever situation is the problem right now, a year later, they're going to be arguing the exact opposite things. And Democrats are going to forget everything that they were arguing about in like, you know, 2023, whenever 2024 happens, where, you know, if Trump does increase more funding for Ukraine, Democrats are going to be arguing,
0: why are we spending more money in
2: Ukraine? Because we've already spent so much. So I just bring that
0: up. Like you, like you said, this is politics, but, but it's, it's inefficient politics to, to say my position will always be. Contra, the opposite, the opposing person's position, is just a terrible idea. And we're kind of seeing that play out with the Democrats, for instance, on the immigration front. But as we were just talking about, you know, Syria um, and and even Iraq, our next story. And we're back at war in Iraq and Syria. So following the drone strike in Jordan that claimed three U.S. troops, the U.S. military launched an air assault on uh, sites in Iraq and Syria tied to Iranian-backed militias and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. The airstrikes used more than 125 precision munitions and struck more than 85 targets at 4 p.m. Eastern on Friday, according to U.S. Central Command. These strikes were directed at the uh, Iranian proxy command centers, intelligence facilities, and storage sites. The strikes avoided direct uh, hits on Iran or senior leaders of the Revolutionary Guard within its borders and did its best to avoid civilian casualties. President Biden signaled that there are more airstrikes to come. We knew there would be a response, and now I'm seeing bickerings of potentially World War III starting from something like this. We got bombed, some of our troops, you know, died from that. Anytime uh, U.S. citizens or U.S. troops died, we always respond with a heavy hand, and that's what's happening here. So what are your guys' thoughts on this situation? Do you think this signals some sort of escalation, or is this more a continuation of what we've been seeing in the Middle East with the Israel, Palestine, Iran, etc.?
2: So, I, in my opinion, i think that this is this is a problem where it keeps this is why i don't like biden's middle east policy this is why i didn't like obama's middle east policy it makes zero sense because sure somebody like me would be all about what they're doing because ultimately they're trying to you know try to resolve the situation by showing strength and showing force and doing all this stuff but ultimately the problem is is that It's all a convoluted mess. Iraq and Syria has all these different groups functioning within Iraq and Syria, which are under the Iranian Revolutionary Force, that are the ones engaging in these attacks. The problem that comes with this is that you're involving many nations that have nothing to do with the conflict by you sending airstrikes on their borders. Syria, Iraq, and Iran are all implicated in this attack. The challenge here comes with that America has a problem where whenever, whenever anything happens, instead of trying to come up with some compromise or some resolution, we continue to try to like you know make the side that we're an ally alliance with win. And that's a good thing on face value, but the bad thing is that this could lead to a potential war. And this is one thing that I liked about Trump's Trump's administration, even though I was probably against it whenever Trump was in office office is that it was the lines were clear enemy friend friend enemy who are our friends who are our enemies we like our friends we hate our enemies and everyone that comes in between we don't care about them and the issue here is that instead of going against iran which should be the primary focal point We like to go through all these other, you know, middle ground coalition forces and attack them. If our focus was entirely on Iran, we need to put pressure on Iran. All of these other, you know, side players that deal with Iran, these proxy wars, they shouldn't happen because your primary enemy should be Iran. All of these other people, whenever you get involved in all these attacking all these other coalition forces, you will end up potentially creating a World War III where you're creating all these other players that are nothing to do necessarily with the war just because other people are infiltrating their borders by you attacking them you are essentially still attacking the mainland that they are in. So it's weird where nowadays no one really wants to go to war with America so they will try to come up with something. Even Iran for all it's worth even though how bad of a country they are in terms of engaging in all these terrorist activities against the U.S. they don't want to go to war with America so they will try to come up with something to prevent that war from going on. But the problem is still that the like, you know, we talk about like, you know, whenever Trump was in office and all the problems that Trump had, well, under Biden, we're getting involved in too many wars all over the place. And the challenge with Biden is that Biden doesn't really know where to stop or how to stop it and I will argue Trump had one good thing about Trump where we can argue that if Russia, Ukraine, that situation was to happen you would have created a compromise very quickly which would have benefited the Russians which would have been bad for democracy but that's what would have happened. Same with Israel Hamas, he has had many negative things to say about Bibi Netanyahu and about Israel that the news never really talks about because they want want the Palestinian people to still support Biden. But, like for all his worth, Trump is very wishy-washy when it comes to these things where he doesn't like getting involved in any wars. Now, when it comes to Israel-Hamas, I'm sure there would have been a compromise that may have benefited the Palestinians a little bit. And the Republicans would have probably criticized Trump and Democrats would have probably criticized Trump. But ultimately, party politics is all that matters. So here, this is the problem where you have Biden. Biden is Obama 2.0. Whenever Obama was there, everything was convoluted. We don't necessarily knew who we were fighting, why we were fighting them, why we're involved here, what we're doing here, why we're providing arms to this player and why we're doing whatever we're doing to this player. And that's what's taking place here. And ultimately, this led to three people getting killed that were American servicemen. Because what we're doing in Jordan and all this stuff going on with Israel and how we're interacting and why we have all these people in certain bases, none of that stuff is making any sense. And why the Iranian people are doing what... are doing doesn't necessarily impact how we're engaging in our things but ultimately all i'm saying is from my you know messed up conversation that i'm trying to bring out everything is a mess and the reason it's a mess is because biden has made it a mess by engaging in an action and then um, responding with brute force, because he also doesn't know exactly what.
0: To do. So, w- with that talking about foreign policy, Trump was actually just nominated by a, a congresswoman, Claudia Ten- Tenney, a Republican congresswoman, who for the Nobel Peace Prize, which is quite hilarious. I mean, if you, when you think of Trump, you don't think of world peace or anything like that. But if we're looking at why he was nominated, it was for the Abrahamic Accords. Now, those are largely falling apart with everything that's been going on in the Middle East. But it was the most significant advancement in relations with the Middle East countries like Saudi Arabia, you know, allying with Israel potentially. Um, so so that could have been a huge, huge uh, kumbaya moment for the world to come together. It didn't turn out that way. But Trump did initiate that during his presidency, which is Quite something. I think if you talk to the average Democratic voter, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't know anything about this. It's kind of, it's kind of disappointing, but it is what it is. Nick, Nick you are you disappointed?
1: Thoughts? What do you think? I'm always disappointed, Tyler. No, I. <laughs> Perpetually it's a, it's a disappointed. that it's all <laughs> shame that it's all falling apart. But um, yeah, I mean, who would have thought that? Oh my God, what should call it? Um, I mean, Jared Kushner is basically just a ghoul who sits in the background of meetings and lords over things and doesn't actually contribute to anything, but you know, that's what everyone thought. And he ended up getting something passed, which it kind of hilarious to me. I feel like there's a trope of businessmen who think they know anything about the world. And just because they've been successful in some company or another company, oh, man, they're an expert on foreign policy. You see that every single time with, you know, the heads of J.P. Morgan, you know, the business roundtable with Jamie Diney. Like, there's so many people who act this way. For example, when Elon will comment on, you know, international musings and whatever, He'll be like, oh, man, you know what, guys? I know how to solve this. I'm Elon Musk. And it's like, really, dude? You don't know anything, okay? You're useless. (laughs) So He's been talking a lot about the border and, like, uh, U.S. policy stuff lately. Well, what's ironic is that he'll tweet something, and then people will be like, oh, my God, Elon, you just defended, like, this entire country. And he'll be like, oh, I'll go on a learning mission. I'll I'll get to the bottom of this. Like, for example, all the um, Israeli comments or um, the anti-Semitic comments that, you know, people were kind of blowing up that Elon had made— um he of course there is this uh guy from the new york times who asked him like hey is your trip to uh israel does that have anything to do with what you've been tweeting about and he's like no that's a complete coincidence it's like really <laughs> i don't think it is <laughs> i think the only reason you're over there right now is to save your own ass because all your advertisers are pulling out but anyway i'm i'm definitely like on a soapbox here and just well, ranting, what's your what's your but... thoughts
2: on the sea rock thing nick
1: well, obviously, it's not good pratique. Who would want this, right? Yeah. Like, and ultimately, like, what's the what's the real solution here? I don't think there is one. I mean, to the one point, the administration keeps talking about they want to avoid a regional war sparking off, right? So, if they do anything to escalate, that risks the regional war actually happening. If they do nothing, however, then you get the same stuff with the Strait of Hormuz and what all the Yemenis are doing right now with um, shipping. For example, the British ship from the last week that you know, was basically threatened. And I forget if they actually had missiles fired at them or what the deal was, but anyway, all the disruption of shipping lanes, all the stuff that's going on, on the one hand, you can't really tolerate that. But on the other, if you escalate too much, then of course you go against your own narrative, which is we need to hang back and play it cool because if we get too involved, then the entire region's going to erupt into some massive war. And so, look, you know, how you tiptoe that, to your point, they're just doing the Obama play, um, playbook of just seeing what happens and reacting as a result of it but of course you get instances like the syrian red line where he said there's a line in the sand you cross this we're going to come down on you they crossed it and nothing happened so you have to sort of balance you know having actual principles and actually staying true to what you say versus using that same rhetoric to de-escalate things and not have them blow up um so look i mean what do you think ultimately should happen here because I don't think there's any, like, clear win to occur here. And I think for all the stuff about Iran, like, okay, we keep having sanctions against them. Is that really going to do anything for all this stuff? It One thing that I I understand that they have a lot of influence over a lot of these breakaway groups in the region and a lot of funding. But at the same time, it sort of ignores any agency of these country-specific groups. It's sort of like if Al-Shabaab in Somalia was to do something next week, then it's like, oh, man, well, this is part of the broader Islamic brotherhood and Islamic state, and therefore, you know, we have to go, you know, back to the head of the organization. It's like, no, sometimes these country-specific groups actually have their own agency. They can make their own choices, and that's what we're seeing. For example, all the Palestinian stuff, sure, there's the Iranian, you know, money that's flowing into it, but at the end of the day... Like, they're autonomous. They have their own agency. They're doing their own thing. It's not like Iran says jump and they say how high. You know, they have their own agency. And it's the same thing with the United States and Israel. Israel is going to do what Israel is going to do. The United States can pressure them. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they're a sovereign country. And whatever they've decided on, it's not like the United States can completely shut that down. And, for example, drawing back to Obama, Obama tried to shut things down. um, And, of course, the Israelis were like, get out of here. And they snubbed him. And the same thing with other U.S. presidents. They've been snubbed in the past. And so, look, overall, this whole thing is a big mess. And in a way, it takes me back to, um, you know, when we were kids and when we were growing up. Like, what were the big issues of the day? It's like, oh, man, the Middle East, you know, back on the menu. I feel like every decade, you know, it always comes back. But ultimately, I don't know. I feel like people are so sick of it. And it's not really going to end up being a huge, huge thing.
2: Would this impact the election, in your opinion?
1: No. I really don't think so. I think if Biden gets embarrassed by it, obviously, that'll be a bad thing. But for example, like Afghanistan, when we pulled out of there, there was like a week where Republicans were like, this is the worst president in U.S. history. This is an embarrassment. America is weak. This is a tragedy. And then a week later, everyone forgot about it. No one cares. It's not going to impact the election. So, you know, if this still is going on a year from now, then yes, it will impact the election. But you know what? It's probably not going to the Israeli Palestinian stuff that likely will have some sort of talking point that likely will impact the election because it's not stopping anytime soon. Whereas all these breakaway things in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, whatever, that sort of flavor of the month, people are going to forget about it. And ultimately, I really don't think it matters politically, even if it does matter, you know, geostrategically.
0: I think at this point. As Americans, legislatures, citizens, we're kind of just so numb to what's gone on in the Middle East that, you know, any increase in violence, we're kind of like, ah, of course, of course, Syria, of course, Iraq, of, of course, of course, there's going to be stuff going on. And So I heard Ben Shapiro recently talking, and he he basically said the reason Americans don't fare well in the Middle East is because they don't understand the mentality and culture and governance of the Middle East and how they basically... Uh, they'll see your lack of force put on them as weakness. So if you're not coming out and retaliating heavily, it'll be seen as weak. And some evidence of that in this case it happened where, um, I forgot which government, I think it was the Iraqi government, came out and said, Well, they retaliated, we're of course going to have to retaliate, but we want to de-escalate the situation. They're, they're saying that because they know they don't stand a chance, and any time they poke the bear, they get bit. And they don't like that, and that seems to be the most effective policy in the Middle East. And I hate to say that because that shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't have to use force um, every single time one of these things happen, but we have to, or else we'll be seen as weak. And and the only
1: if, if you give them an inch, they'll take a, a mile kind of situation. Well, that's the so, classic neocon mentality, and that's what no. Patek's I get that. I'm just curiously, like, what, what do you think? Granted, she's not a neocon, right? But that is what she said essentially, which is the culture of the region being the sort of machismo culture of. If you hit me, well, I'm going to hit you 10 times harder. So this I' mean, is really
0: talking point right now. It really is. But do you guys think that that's justified? Do you think it's true or is that just a talking point to justify force? Because I could see it either way.
2: I, I'm going to bring up something. I was thinking about this. We think about I'm going to go back to immigration and I'm going to combine that and relate that to foreign policy. Oh, baby. So with Trump. You know, when we talked about this before, where Nick was discussing where with Trump, there's always this talking point that, oh, Trump's coming in, Trump's going to become president. That means that illegal immigrants have like, you know, a small window of time before things get ugly for illegal immigrants. So right now you're going to see a massive influx of illegal immigrants until Trump comes back. And that's just because, you know, people are worried that Trump's going to be back in office. And even if Trump and Biden may have the same exact policies on paper, is just Trump's rhetoric is so harsh that illegal immigrants are much more terrified of Trump versus Biden. And ultimately that means Biden is going to feel a bigger brunt of more illegal immigrant crossings. Same thing can be applied to the Middle East. If Trump is there, Ultimately, more players are scared of what's gonna happen. Someone like Saudi Arabia is even going to think twice or three times before they engage in any action because Trump is there. And Trump's a wild card, Trump can do anything. Trump people are scared of Trump. When Trump is there, nobody has any idea what's gonna happen.
0: I think people actually trust Trump. When he says there's a red line somewhere, I think people are willing to trust Trump more yeah. than they are other people. Like yeah. that, that's difference. Because like Obama, he when he had his red line and didn't enforce it, that told them everything they needed to know about Obama, but they don't know that about Trump. I don't know yeah. if there's been an instance where Trump's like, if you pass this line, I will annihilate you and someone actually passed the line. And I think that you're because, absolutely- Yeah,
2: right. because they're afraid. And that's yeah. what I'm saying is like, when it deals with Trump, one of the biggest things and pros that he had in foreign policy, is that you don't know what he's going to do. Same with the Israel-Hamas thing. You know when that Israel-Hamas actually, you know, the attack happened? It, most people that are Republicans would assume that Donald Trump was probably in favor of Israel and said positive things about Israel and said that, you know, we're going to be in support of Bibi Netanyahu. As opposed to that, what Trump said is that Bibi Netanyahu did a terrible job at defending his borders and he needs to do a better job. And ultimately, all of this happened because of the incompetence of Bibi Netanyahu. Think about how you would have thought about it. As a Republican, you would automatically assume, oh, Trump, Trump's Republican. Trump's going to be on Israel's side. He's going to say that we're going to support Israel. Trump's a wild card. Same thing applies to the Middle East in general. When Trump was there... America became better, not allies, but had a better relationship with Russia, which solved the entire, entire Syrian situation on its own. America didn't do anything in Syria under Trump. They did they did one or two attacks, that one attack that I referenced, and after that, you never heard about anything dealing with Syria under Trump's administration, which was like the primary talking point under Obama's administration. Same thing could be said about Iraq. Under Obama, it was a lot of cleaning up of everything going on in Iraq. What's going on in Iraq? Iraq has is prime minister that was placed there oh that prime minister has been removed they have all this like misconfusion they got all these different terrorist groups that are infiltrating iraq and then you have you know the iranians basically creating a proxy in iraq trump came in we never talked about iraq anymore iraq was a mute point we don't even know what happened in iraq to be honest like if you were to ask me today who is the government of iraq i have zero clue like that's what happened because trump was there And if uh, Obama was there, these were all issues. Same with things going on with Egypt. Egypt, same thing. We don't know what happened exactly. Egypt had the brotherhood take over and that's it. Like all of these scenarios under Trump were so much like the people were scared. People were afraid of engaging in any action that was opposed to the United States to the point that they never even talked about doing anything against the United States because it, we were worried that Trump is going to react in a crazy way and that's going
0: to uh, you but know actually, impact them. I don't. I don't think it's the crazy way that I, I literally think it's they trust him. I, I yeah, don't think true. they're going. This guy is so mad. He's erratic. He's gonna bomb us tomorrow because we. He you says know, what he says. He's gonna negotiated a, a a tariff and he didn't like it. That's not gonna happen. It's when Trump goes, "All right, guys, if you attack them, I'm going to blow your entire country up." They go, "Oh, he, he might actually do that." <laughs> So it's it's not it's not that he's crazy. It's that he believes them. And what's the signal of a strong leader, in a way? It's like people believe when you're going to take action when you say you are. When Biden or Obama says they're going to take action and they don't, they're seen as weak leaders. That's just yeah. a, that that to me that's just a fact of the matter. And-
2: I think this is Trump's biggest strongest points coming into this election is immigration and foreign policy. If I was Trump I would hammer hard on this Ukraine thing because look ultimately it's been Biden how many years since the Ukraine war started like two years the dude lost in Afghanistan going in in like the first week then you had the whole Ukrainian crisis now you have all these wars going on all over the Middle East that make zero sense we don't even know where we stand necessarily and then you had Israel get attacked under Biden's watch all of these things should be talking points for Trump how Trump goes about it i honestly am not sure and i honestly think that i would rather have a nikki haley presidency over a trump presidency dealing with foreign policy because she probably understands these situations much better but ultimately trump is a much scarier figure to have in office than nikki haley and being scary is much better than being a whip and i think that's the issue when it deals with foreign policy in the united states
0: Look, when you're yeah, when you're a president, people need to trust that you're going to take action when you say you're going to take action, and I think people do trust that about Trump. And as the world gets more chaotic, in a way, I think it helps Trump because people want that strongman leader. That's a tendency when things get Get more erratic, people want more stability, they bring in more of a strong leader, and I think that's what Trump represents. All right, so moving on from the Middle East, we're going back to the U.S. in U.S. politics. We have, Newsom will go to the ends of the earth for Biden. So California Governor Gavin Newsom, when asked by MS, uh, MSNBC host Alex Wagner, said he would go, uh, quote, to the ends of the earth, end quote, for President Biden. Despite the speculation that the California governor may still run, Newsom said there is no chance of that happening. He then questioned why someone would want him to run at the same time as Biden. I mean, he's a young, sprightly Biden, of course, um, who he said has a, quote, record of accomplishments and is a man of character, a man of decency. In the same interview, Newsom took a swing at former President Trump, saying that he's damaged goods and more unhinged than ever. And it's not that I disagree with him. It's just that he's trying to get some brownie points here. But anyways, Newsom continued by saying that Biden has a border plan, but Republicans in Congress are failing to act due to the upcoming presidential election. To that, I would say the Democrats, their entire immigration plan was to do the opposite of Trump. So if you're going to fix it at the last minute, it's probably not going to work. But I know I had my own comments there. What are you guys' thoughts on Gavin Newsom, who will go to the ends of the earth for Biden and will absolutely not run for president?
2: i think gavin newsom wants to replace kamala harris as the vice president i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i think i think gavin newsom is a very interesting character where if you if you you know he's like the only like democrat governor i think of that went on fox news on sean hannity's show and sean hannity was praising gavin newsom saying that gavin newsom should run for president again instead of biden like it's so weird that republicans are really trying to hype up gavin newsom gavin newsom on the flip side is like the most wishy Washy candidate if he was to run because he keeps saying that he wants to run but doesn't want to run and all this stuff and then even biden called him out for it whenever biden if i didn't have some good points every now and then and he basically was like you know some people have the guts to run again you know to say that they're going to run for president one of them is that glenn phillips guy and the other one is the one that's the governor of california whenever he was in california in the guy's homeland home turf which i think you know Props to Biden for doing what Biden does. But I will say when it deals with Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom is a weird guy where he wants to make sure that he wins all of Biden's votes and Biden loses in the next election. That's ultimately his goal. And Gavin Newsom will run for president in 2028. If Biden loses in 2024, and he'll probably end up running against Kamala Harris for that position. Why all that stuff is interesting is that, you know, nothing Gavin Newsom has really done. You can't really think of many accomplishments that Gavin Newsom has, but ultimately he's the most popular governor probably after, after Ron DeSantis in the country. And when I say popular, I mean that everyone in the country knows who he is. So I think Gavin Newsom is trying to do what he can to gain bounty brownie points. And I think ultimately, because of all this conversation that he was trying to run a shadow campaign against Biden, he has to try to walk back on the tracks because he wants to make sure that he has Biden on his side whenever he runs again for reelection and needs Biden's endorsement.
0: True, But he he was also able to keep himself in the news, which is pretty interesting. It's not a bad strategy, ultimately. But Nick, what are your thoughts?
1: Do I think he's important at this point? No, not even a little bit. I think it's far too late to mount any sort of campaign for anyone else who wants to get involved in the race. Sure, you have people like Dean Phillips and you have others who, I mean, of course, you know, RFK Jr. is going to like pop up once the actual like real election starts. But overall, I think Newsom, you know, the time for all this stuff is passed, like the time for a true primary is over, right? Like a few months ago, if Biden had decided, okay, I'm not going to run, then you would have actually seen something. But because he's in the race, no one's going to run. Buttigieg isn't going to run. Newsom's not going to run. All these people aren't going to run. And as a result, you know, sure, it's nice that he's in the limelight a few times. And it's really just stumping for Biden, right? All these people have to come out of the woodworks and say positive things because ultimately, you know, trying to get people to vote this time around is going to be very different, right? There's a different set of priorities, different sort of, you know, I think it's nice. It's a nice story when you get to vote for the outsider. Where you really hate the person who's the president, in that case it was Trump, right? If you really hated Donald Trump, it was like, okay, Joe Biden, you know, obviously we gotta vote for him. Even if you didn't really like him, you're still gonna vote for him because you just hated Trump so much. This time around, like, how are you really getting amped to vote? Maybe on the one hand you think the court cases are gonna go through and you know, if if that happens, all bets are off. But ultimately, I think if Biden wasn't running, yeah, Newsom would probably run, the same way that DeSantis is running. But Biden is running. He is the only legitimate candidate at this point, and it's too late in the primary process for them to pick anyone else. So it kind of sad in a way that we're having a repeat of the last time around here. I mean, we've talked about this plenty of times before, right? No one's excited about this one. Like maybe there's like a couple MAGA people who like for the first time are like, oh my God, this is going to be an incredible election. I can't wait for this. You know, let's go, Brandon, whatever they come up with, right? Maybe they're going to have fun. But apart from that, no one else is excited about this. No one else wants this to happen. So just in general, like, my answer is it's too late. He doesn't matter. Whatever he does say is going to have to – is just to try to help Joe Biden win because, let's face it, he needs all the help he can get at this point. He doesn't sound great. And that's what I – by the way, what I really don't like about Sean Hannity and the fact that, like, he was like, oh, Newsom would be great. People like Sean Hannity are just absolute political scum – in the sense that they're <laughs> total, total partisan hacks <laughs> and not a single thing they say is truthful when it comes to their own party. He loved the too. They will always, of course he did, <laughs> they will always say, oh, my guy is the best guy on the planet. And when your guy messes up, I think what I really value is someone who will say, oh man, my side messed up and this was actually really bad. I know a lot of the times you can't really say that. But if you're an independent political commentator, you should at least have the balls to say, wow, this wasn't a great look. This wasn't a good thing to happen. And meanwhile, Sean Hannity will be like, oh, yeah, Trump is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Everything the man touches turns to gold. And he's just, you know, God on earth, basically. He's incredible. Everyone should vote for him because he's the best person to ever exist. And stuff like that. It's like, I I don't know, man. It, It just rubs me the wrong way.
2: Let me reverse track on Sean Hannity. So I remember back in twenty sixteen, I used to listen to Sean Hannity a lot. So Sean Hannity, in my opinion, is probably the most reputable Republican commentator, probably of all time. People give him all this other stuff, but after after what is his name, Rush Limbaugh passed away, I'd argue that Sean Hannity has a you know pedestal that none of the other all the other Republican analysts or Democrat analysts back. Yeah, want well, to reach Sean Hannity's level. Touch Sean Hannity. So. I think when it deals with Sean Hannity... Sean Hannity is also a flip-flopper. And I'll remind people of what happened in the past. So in 2015, he was the biggest Ted Cruz fan. Like, I don't think that... He Sean Sean picks the worst ones. Was, Sean Hannity was a huge Newt Gingrich fan. Didn't like <sighs> Mitt Romney in 2015. Typical. He was a huge Ted Cruz fan. Wasn't Didn't really say much about Trump. But he really, really loved Ted Cruz. Then, whenever the election came around... And when Ted Cruz started to lose... Ted Cruz's people turned on Sean Hannity saying that Sean Hannity is like a big Trump guy and this is why it's gonna happen. And Sean Hannity, for all it's worth, I will defend him, he wasn't necessarily a Trump guy. He actually supported Ted Cruz a lot more than Donald Trump. But when that happened, he became anti-Ted Cruz, obviously, because all the Ted Cruz people became anti-Sean Hannity. So then he became Donald Trump guy. So then he was Donald Trump guy until that election. The election stuff played out and it's all great. Now I would argue Sean Hannity is still kind of a flip-flopper a little bit, where he he has that thought process where someone like me could appreciate, which is if you ran somebody and he became president and lost in re-election, the guy is a loser and you need to make sure that you can make sure you can win again. So if Donald Trump can't win again, maybe we should look at other ways and other people that could potentially beat Joe Biden because Joe Biden lost to Donald Trump, or beat Donald Trump before. Then obviously polls happen, everything is in Donald Trump's favor. So now Donald Sean Hannity is back to where he began, where he's like, you got to support Donald Trump, yada, yada, yada. I think uh, ultimately, I think that's important dealing with sean hannity where sean hannity does have other people that will come on his show most republican analysts are very scared of having democrat people come on their show and most democrats are also wimps when they go on republican commentator shows i think this is the one thing that i respect a lot about vivek ramaswamy that vivek ramaswamy did literally went on all these people's talk shows he still that does were he went to the breakfast yeah.
0: club last week which is like one of the most left-wing shows it was actually yeah. an interesting conversation too I'd and i think it when
2: it deals with Trump I think in the beginning Trump was like that I think Trump is the reason why CNN matters really so like whenever whenever Trump was running his first declared that he was going to run as president on CNN He didn't declare on Fox News. He declared on CNN. CNN got so much news coverage because of Donald Trump. People started to watch CNN because of Donald Trump. And then they were very anti-Donald Trump, which gave them more credibility because Donald Trump started his stuff on CNN. My point with, you know, news and all this crap before I get into, you know, confusion is that when it deals with people like Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom are smart that they're going on these people's talk shows. He's smart that he's going on Sean Hannity's talk show because ultimately that's how you're going to become president in the future. You can't, go about it and like you know try to you know try to appease all these like local commentators that are going to support you anyway you should try to take you know big stabs on trying to go against go with these big analysts and commentators that are going to criticize your party and criticize you and everything that you believe and i think gavin newsom is smart that he did that and ultimately that's why someone like sean hannity may like gavin newsom but I think when it to deals talk with these people, <laughs> when it deals with people like Gavin Newsom and anybody in the Democratic Party or anyone in the Republican Party, rather. You have to make sure that you can win the endorsement of the sitting president or win the endorsement of the former president. Trump can say that he made Sean he made Ron DeSantis and he made Nikki Haley and he made all these people. Ultimately, it's true in its own way too. Because if they didn't have Trump's endorsement, they would have probably lost their primary elections. We don't know. Same could be said about Governor Kemp. So I think with the Democratic side, it's the same ballpark and game plan where they have to make sure that even if they don't like Biden, Biden is still the best. Front runner that the Democrats have at the moment, and he's blowing everybody else out of the water. So, in the future, they need Biden's endorsement. So, it's this all true, playing for the future. But
0: here's the deal, guys. I actually think Newsom's basically setting himself up to be the nominee should anything happen to Biden. I mean, that's not out of the question. We thought this might happen during the last election cycle where he was already starting to lose it. But at this point, if you just listen to Biden when he speaks, he doesn't even have any like power to his voice. He's very soft spoken, and that's not just because who he naturally is. He used to be different. It's he's just a much older, more frail person. So, Whatever may happen, should something happen, Kamala Harris is very unlikable. And I think Gavin Newsom would be a much better candidate. And I don't think they can at this point bring in some random celebrity like Oprah or even someone like uh, Michelle Obama. She was actually asked if she would run for president. And she said, absolutely not. I saw what my husband had to go through. I would never do something like that. So with all that said, I think Newsom is basically tiptoeing only to say, I'm here if you need me, but otherwise I'm just gonna support Biden. Because if I come out and run against Biden now, I'm going to be attacked, and then should something happen to Biden, and then I'm actually the nominee, I'm not going to be as strong. Now this would be a lot of 4D chess, but I don't know. Gavin Newsom he seems like a pretty sharp guy. He's like the uh, Democrat uh, uh, Mitt Romney is what I see. he got this nice uh, silver fox kind of guy, well spoken. He looks the most presidential out of anyone that could be president. That is true. If we're being real here, he speaks pretty well, so he's got all the he's he's checking a lot of the boxes there. Um, so y- you never know. Who, who knows, he could play a part. But with that said, like I was saying, uh, you know, Biden, he's kind of losing it. He's kind of a puppet. So critique. carry us to a last story. So Johnson
2: thinks Biden is a puppet. So on Friday, Speaker Mike Johnson, the Republican from Louisiana, said that President Biden's staff is keeping him from taking executive action to stern to stem the flow of immigrants on the southern border. He knows that he has the authority. We've documented it for him. I've read to him the law myself to the president. Mr. President, please take action, Johnson said on Fox Business on Friday morning. Johnson has been consistently urging Biden for weeks now, pushing for executive action on border and migration policies. He specifically advocated for the reinstatement of the Trump-era Remain in Mexico policy and the continuation of wall construction along the U.S.-Mexican border. Johnson asserts that such actions don't require new congressional authority. Quote, I don't think he's allowed to do it. I'm not sure Joe Biden is actually making these decisions. I think it's staff around him and they're pushing him to hold the or to keep the border open. Um, end quote. Johnson said, what's your thoughts on his comments? Is Biden a puppet? Nick and Teller, what are your thoughts? Not,
0: not it. I can actually see Biden's strings. It's not that he's a puppet. It's that everyone knows it is the worst part. And I even think other countries know it. Everyone knows it. Like, I personally, my if I have a conspiracy belief that I will, you know, stand for every, all as much as I possibly can, it's that... Currently, Obama is pulling all of the strings in the White House. We don't see Obama in the news, but that's for a reason. It's because he's constantly working with the administration to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, but wasn't able to during his term. Obama's younger, he's sharper, he has more of a vision than Biden. Actually, I don't think Biden has a vision. Biden's vision is whatever gets him votes and whatever people tell him what to do. So, yeah, I, I think he's absolutely a puppet. I think we've known that. And I think that's one of the biggest dangers if you are a Democrat voter. That is just voting the party line. It's to understand you're not actually electing the person you're electing. You're electing, electing essentially a group of... you could. I'll say deep state for now. I don't mean in a conspiracy way. I just mean... Group of there intelligent are in the, Democrats. There are, there are people in the back room that are running the show and if you're okay with that then biden's an okay pick but if you cannot stand that like i can't i don't want to elect someone just for them to be dictated and told what to do then don't vote for biden because that that's a serious concern that you should at least consider going into the election do you want to uh, have someone who is a puppet at the end of the day and that's
1: what biden is so nothing's you know, gonna Mike, say fatigue legs
2: pegs on a board
1: <laughs> well i guess If I'm just looking at it from my own frame of reference, which is around the energy stuff, it doesn't feel like he's a puppet at all. Yes, he takes into account what certain parties are saying at different times. So, for example, sometimes... Right now, what he's doing with um, LNG exports, we have all these terminals that are pending approval in the United States, and he's basically saying, okay, let's hold off on these. Let's, you know, hang it out. On the other hand, he approved the Willow Oil Project, which is a new development. It's ConocoPhillips out in Alaska near a wetland. And so a lot of environmentalists are mad at that. And so it's like, I don't know, just on the puppet comment, who is he a puppet for? Because on the one hand, he favors big oil in certain times, and then he favors the environmental people at other times. And just like from my very narrow lens, it seems like he's pretty much doing middle-of-the-road stuff where he doesn't seem to explicitly be tied to one group of grassroots organizers. It really does seem like, you know, depending on the issue, he'll choose one side or the other. And I feel like that's the hallmark of someone who's very much not a puppet and is not beholden to a particular group of people.
0: I, I By puppet, I didn't mean beholden to a, like a an interest group of people. I mean beholden to the decisions of another person like i don't think he's the actual leader of the group i don't think when they have a conversation about where the direction of their policy is going biden's the one to go we're going to pick this option instead of that i think that's someone else so to me that's what i mean by puppet it's the authority like he's the he's the he's the speaker he's he's the representative but is he the decision maker to me that's that's the distinction which I, he very well, you know, he could be, but I I just don't think so.
2: And I'll give props to Biden when Biden's props are due. I think certain presidents, that's been the case. It's not like it's anything that out there. Like under George W. Bush, what was their people's comments? That George W. Bush was a puppet. But he wasn't a puppet that didn't know what he was doing, he was just a puppet that listened to all his advisory counsel that he had telling him what to do. He just dealt with I people mean. like Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, um, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, you name it. Those people. And he think had, he actually same... had more
0: interest groups, I would say. I would say yeah. Bush, you know, there were like the oil companies and all that, but anyways.
2: yeah I think but see, I'd say I'd say there's a lot of similarities between George W. Bush and Joe Biden. The only difference between George W Bush and Joe Biden is that George W Bush was seen as more of just like a figurehead. He was always looked at as a figurehead. He was someone that people thought didn't actually make any decisions and was kind of dumb. While with Joe Biden, people just think he's very old, he doesn't have a brain of his own. He just, you know, utilizes the people around him that do know what they're doing and they tell him what to do and he uses his best judgment and makes those decisions. I think look ultimately there's business owners that operate like that there are you know ceos that operate like that there are people around the world that operate like that that are in high level positions so it's not like a right or wrong answer i just think the issue though is that if you want someone that you know makes their own decisions and has some kind of you know some some kind of might about them and some kind of terror about them then you want trump because ultimately, under Trump... Strong, <laughs> Vladimir Taylor oh is my number one pick. <laughs> when, I, when I mean terror, I don't mean in a negative way. I mean someone yeah. that has like a boldness about them. You know, when you see a Trump... Yeah, it's a strong man think, kind of deal. I strong guess. man, you know, he's the one that's going to, you know, shake or break the world. Trump While loves big Biden, strong men. Nobody's... Nobody's thinking that. If people see Biden, they see wimp. They're not like, oh man, Biden, dude, he's gonna, he's gonna change up the whole world. Like, dude, Biden can't even like, you know, remember who he is. How is he gonna change up the whole world? Like, that's what people think of Biden. Like, he's he even recently had a gaffe, which I'm surprised that the news didn't really blow up about, but it was blown up about in British news that Biden said called Donald Trump the president. Or something like that. It was just funny. But that's what Biden does, is that Biden forgets who he is half the time. He doesn't even remember that he's president. Pratique. So, like,
1: yeah. By the way, when you say strong man, it sounds like you're saying just someone who's committed to their principles and who stands by what they say, right? You don't mean strong man in the sense that it's usually used politically, which is an authoritarian leader who just bends an entire country to their will and totally shapes the institutions to be undemocratic and authoritarian.
2: It's a mix. It's a mix. I would say it's a mix. There's more of that element, I would say, where, you know, whenever people think of president, the so most famous presidents that we have in our country were more authoritarian than otherwise. I'll give you an example. FDR. FDR was probably the most authoritarian president that we've ever had to date. But you don't really think of FDR in that way. He was the fireside chat guy. He was the most populous president we had. He was there for 14 years and died in office. Like the guy with FDR is that FDR had made a lot of accomplishments. He made some things that we'd argue were probably not his best decisions. But ultimately, FDR had a storyline within himself. I think the same thing could deal with People like Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, for all it's worth, may have his flaws with Watergate, but Richard Nixon won 47 out of the 50 states in the country. I think Richard Nixon at the time when he was elected was probably one of the most popular presidents that we've had to date. And then Watergate kind of just threw that all under the water. Same thing could be applied to Ronald Reagan, where Ronald Reagan, Republicans are still obsessed with Ronald Reagan. They still would rather have Ronald Reagan as president than anybody else. And the reason is, is that Ronald Reagan made a lot of hard decisions and he was seen as that figurehead that had that, you know, kind of, you know, name and value about him. I think the same thing where it's like there is some authoritarian mix there, there is like, you know, I matter a lot more than the party, the party is where it is because of me, that mentality, and that mentality has existed for a lot of leaders and it's a lot of the leaders that you think of that are the more popular leaders among the parties. I think JFK had that same level too, which may be why he was assassinated, but it's a lot of those kind of elements that bring up those people. And I think maybe what Nick is saying that has some elements to what Donald Trump says, but it's just, you know, I don't think he's dictator, but I think that you have to have some authoritarian presidents. And I think that Donald Trump has that, but Joe Biden doesn't. And I think George W. Bush was the same way.
0: I don't think you need authoritarian presidents necessarily, but I think you made a good point there where you, you say, what drives it, the party or the person? And I think that matters a lot. Who's driving the policy? Trump with Biden, the party drives his policy with Trump. Trump is driving his own policy. So I think that's something to consider. My theory is that, you know, when you get to periods of instability, political instability, that's when the more, you know, strongman type leaders show up where they're dictating the trajectory of everything. In periods that are more calm, of course, you're going to have, if you have, you know, your Jeb Bushes, they'll fare just fine. But when things get chaotic, they want someone that they could trust that could defend them. And that's when... I get Trump. I think they're looking for a strong leader. And last comment, I wasn't able to sneak it in before, but George W. Bush is 77 years old several years younger than both of the leading presidential candidates this year, and he was president in 2000. So just think about that for a second, how ridiculous that is. But that's the world we live in. That's all. Anyways, that's the world we live in. And next week, the world you will live in is episode 166. But right now, that's the close of episode 165 of Politicana. Thank you for tuning in. We will catch you next week later.